You just want to glorify Jesus who has died and who is raised from the dead and who has defeated the powers of the enemy and who has defeated death and who has shown the way for us to inherit eternal life. We're just setting up so we can try and um, share this on Zoom. So if you're on Zoom, hopefully you can see a PowerPoint as well. We're trying to be very high tech here today. So I was asked to talk a bit about... Sorry, Holly's making signs. What was that, Holz? Not close enough to the microphone. Okay. Is that better? <laughs> it's right in my nose now. So we're going to be starting to think about rule of life. I'll come on to what on earth does that mean in a minute. But um, I wanted to start with a completely different question. Um, what makes someone a Christian? Um, we could shout it out. There could be a bunch of answers people might come up with. Here's, here's some I thought of. Um, is a Christian someone who goes to church? Well, I mean, clearly going to church, meeting with God's people can be a great blessing. But certainly... There are people who've grown up in a sort of Christian society who just go to church, kind of, that's the done thing, out of habit. Um, doesn't in, its, in itself make you a Christian. Um, what about coming from a Christian home? I, I am incredibly thankful for the blessing of having come from a home where Jesus was known. Because, you know, that, that has so helped me to find Christ myself. But I know there are loads of people in this room who are followers of Jesus who did not grow up in a Christian home. And likewise, there is nothing you can do as a parent to guarantee that your children are, are going to follow Jesus for themselves. So it has to be more than that. Um, living a good life, I would hope that we aspire to live a good life in, in a world which increasingly struggles to work out even exactly what that means. Um, but I've got friends who wouldn't call themselves Christians who are also at least trying to live what they think is a good life. That's to be saying more to it than that giving your life to Jesus. It, it feels like there's some kind of important step that you make, but you know, being a Christian cannot be about a one-off step that happened at one point in your life, however important that milestone was. Um, people sometimes talk about praying the prayer, praying the sinner's prayer. You, know, you, you, you acknowledge your sin, your need of God. And again, for some people, that's been a hugely important milestone. For others, it's been a bit more like a journey, and they would struggle to identify a milestone like that. Um, being baptized uh, as I've grown older and perhaps lived in an environment where less and less people have been brought up in a Christian environment. I think I've really come to value and recognize the importance of baptism as that huge step of making a visible declaration that I'm going to follow Jesus. But again, it is a one-off step in a life's journey, no matter how important a step that is. And I think something really powerful happens at baptism. You know, that shows it. We're not always sure, are we? What, what does it mean for someone to be a Christian? And then, having grappled with that question, there is that everyday question of, well, what does a Christian actually do? Not what kind of makes you a Christian, but what does it actually mean to be a Christian day to day? What does it mean to live a Christian life? Does it mean going to church again? Does it mean trying to live a good life again? Having given your life to Jesus, does it mean you give your time to Jesus and your money to Jesus? Is that expression of sacrifice? Look, they are all great things. And I think they are all components. That They are all things that I guess many Christians do and many Christians find blessing and life in. 
but in itself things like that don't feel like they make a a complete or a clear answer they don't seem to get to the essence of what does it mean to be a christian what does it mean to be a follower of jesus and that i mean church probably happens once a week um they don't seem to go to the heart of what do i actually do to be a christian what are the things i do in my life to live this thing out which brings me to this challenge or this question what did jesus say that his followers should do because surely if we can answer that then we can get a bit closer to understanding what do i do to live a christian life what do i do to be a christian day to day And when you look at what did Jesus say, he does start to talk about commands. He does start to talk about teachings that we should follow. So Jesus said this in John 15, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And that's fairly strong, isn't it? It's saying that Jesus expects us to keep his commands and that, you know, we we quite rightly recognize the, the the distinctive of being a christian as one who lives in the love of god one who expresses the love of god but jesus says here if you want to remain in my love keep my commands he connects the two and he says that this was characteristic of his life as well i have kept my father's commands and i remain in his love so Jesus is saying that keeping his commands is important. It really matters. He's commanding us to do that. And th this, this is about the early church. So the they is Jesus' early followers and disciples, several thousand of them by this point. And in Acts 2.42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they did things throughout the day, throughout the week. And one of the things they did was devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what did the apostles teach? They taught what Jesus has commanded them. They passed on Jesus' teaching to his new followers. So again, the early church was characterized by being a group of people who passed on and sought to follow Jesus' teaching and Jesus' commands. So, if what it means to do Christian day to day, to do disciple of, Je disciple of Jesus day to day, is to follow Jesus' commands, then what actually are or were Jesus' commands? Because Jesus had a funny relationship with commands and commandments, didn't he? On the one hand, when he talked to the religious people, he constantly criticized them for loading people up with laws and rules and commands that they couldn't possibly be expected to follow. But at the same time, he gave clear teachings to his disciples and he expected them to follow those things. But somehow his teachings were not this myriad of little rules that you had to try and tick all the boxes. There was something much deeper and more profound and more fundamental than that. So what did Jesus actually command his disciples, his followers, us to do? So th this, this is a key verse. This is in Matthew 22. And um, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, came to Jesus and tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And I, I kind of think this question was sincere. I, I think he was coming to Jesus as a teacher who either he respected or at very least found challenging and provoking. And he asked this question and Jesus gave a very clear and simple answer. He said, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what Jesus said to this teacher of the Jewish law was, you can bring down everything that you need to do to follow and obey and honor God down to these two things. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And if you do these two things, you will fulfill all of the rest of what is taught in the law and the prophets. So it's not about a myriad rules. It's about these utterly simple but utterly profound things. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then after Jesus had risen from the dead, now, if somebody's risen from the dead and they tell you to do something, you know, you're going to take that pretty seriously, aren't you? There is a fair degree of authority in having risen from the dead and then gathering your followers and saying, okay, what do you want us to do now? You're not really going to question that. So Jesus could have commanded them to do pretty much anything at this point. But what he actually did, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah, okay, you've raised from the dead, you're walking around. I think I'm happy to take that one on trust. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus brings this command to go and make disciples of the whole of the world, and to do so by passing on his commandments and teachings to them. So, fundamentally, you can break down Jesus' commands to three really simple things. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And go and spread the good news. Make disciples. And those are sometimes called the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And they are basically Jesus' commands. So there must be something about being a Christian, about doing Christian day to day, that involves a life that is oriented around those three things. And here's a bit about my personal journey with illustrations. Look, all, all I can do is say it was acceptable in the 80s, all right? I, I have loads of photos of my flatmates and the, all the guys are wearing shorts up to about here. It, it, I'm pretty clear that was what we did. It wasn't just me. And okay, the t-shirt, we were heading into the 90s by then. Those bright colors, they were just the thing. We all thought this was good. I, I can't justify the hair. I'm afraid there's just no excuse for that. So in my early 20s, my faith was about developing a personal spiritual life, about following God for myself. I felt that was really important. But I did have this question. Surely there has to be more to it than this. It can't just be about me at the end of the day. It can't just be about me following Jesus. Then I got some myths. Does anyone think I look like a slightly less attractive version of um, John Biddle in this? <laughs> He's up the back. That, that, that's me preaching in TCF in 2004. You don't take photos of people preaching. We should do this, actually. It was only there because that was Holly's baptism, so I was people were taking pictures. 
Um, I don't, also usually wore something slightly smarter than that, but I was about to go into a pool at the time. But increasingly my faith became about church ministry and service. And that was great because it was living out my faith alongside other people. And we were, we were worshipping and we were touching something of the presence of God. And we were seeking to reach out to others from that. But I did have a question. I, okay, I've simplified the question there. But what about the other six days? What about all the, all the bits of my life that aren't carried out and conducted in church? So what about my work life? What about my extended family life? What about my community life? What about the things that I feel the called to do that aren't about leading in church? So by the time I got to my mid-40s, that, that's me and the Prime Minister, by the way. I just thought I'd slip that one in there. Um, it felt like faith was more about taking it into the world, about taking it outside the walls of the church and saying, how do I follow Jesus in the environment that I'm in? And many of you who know a bit of my story will know that I spent quite a few years feeling a very strong sense of calling to politics and four years as an elected politician, um, hence the picture. And in that, that generates a new set of questions. That generates questions like, how do I make it work out here, beyond the walls of the church, beyond the boundaries of faith, in an environment not beyond the boundaries of faith, but beyond the boundaries of sort of that religious environment where we talk about faith the whole time? Um, how do I make it in an environment where most people do not, not, not acknowledge Jesus, where some people would get quite angry if I even mentioned the name of Jesus, where some people would have lots of challenges and questions, um, where my Christian friends aren't around me to encourage me and support me, where we don't have ways of doing this that we all accept as, yeah, that th this is how you do this. It, you know, in church, we do a bunch of things. What have we done this morning? We've prayed together. We've worshipped together. We've sung songs together. We've shared communion together. We all participate in that stuff. We all know what it means. And those are our kind of shared way of doing things, aren't they? What do you do when you take your faith into an environment where most people around you won't have that. They won't have those shared means of engaging, those shared symbols and rituals that we all acknowledge and know their meaning. And how did I seek to make it work in the out here, in the out there, in that space beyond the walls of the church, beyond Christian community? Um, what I actually did was became part of a thing called um, the Order of the Mustard Seed which uh, technically is an ecumenical lay order of mission, if you want the fancy words. Um, I can try and summarize what it is in three simple things. First of all, it's a solemn promise or a vow to live by Jesus' three primary commands. Hence why we just looked at the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. What I did was made a solemn promise to God that said, whatever context I'm in, Whatever you call me to do, I'm going to live my life in accordance with loving God with everything I've got, with loving my neighbor as much as I love myself, even when that, label, that neighbor is my political enemy who's saying nasty things about me all day every day, and going to share the gospel, not keeping my light under a bush, not, not telling people that I'm a Christian because it might be more election worthy or politically expedient or whatever it was. Secondly, it's a rule of life, sometimes called a customary. You know, your customs are the things you just do, aren't they? So how are you going to build into a life a set of things that you just do, a set of positive habits that help you to live out your faith in practical ways? 
So I, I committed to really thinking about doing that and to crafting a rule of life that were a set of practical things that I would do to live out my faith in whatever changing context I happened to be in. And then I found friends and companions. There's that lovely word, kumbrogi, it's like a, a Celtic word. It goes back to the Welsh and the Irish, I guess, um, which means companions of the heart. But basically people who are going to share the journey with you and offer both accountability. Are you really doing this in the places where nobody's looking because it's just you out there in the world? And offer support and help and encouragement on the journey. And that's summed up in a symbol, which is a ring that I wear on my finger. You can kind of see it there, one for the camera. Um, it's, got a, it's got some Greek on it. We seem to be doing Greek this morning. Um, the Greek is just, um, it's only four words. It's Romans chapter 14 and verse 7, which um, you'll see it translated various ways. Uh, the old translations say, no man liveth unto himself. None of us live for themselves. This idea that I'm going to live my life for God, loving God with all I have, I'm going to live it for people, um, loving my neighbor as myself, I'm going to live it for those who don't know Jesus, um, great commission, seeking the lost. I'm not going to live it primarily for my own comfort, my own security, my own blessing. I want to see others blessed in that, even though I know that my only ability to bless comes from the fact that God has blessed me. So that's how I sought to make it work out there. I'm still part of the Order of the Mustard Seed, as is Lisa. Um, if you want to know a bit more about it, I'd recommend this really good book. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a few today if anyone wants one, but no, seriously. Um, it was founded in the 18th century. It's an incredibly inspiring story. And if you want to know a bit more about the story, I had the privilege of being able to write a book that brings some of that up to date and just talks about how it's relevant for now and um, yeah okay the book's called the Lord of the Ring um, it's by me Phil Anderson and um, the best way to go is if you google Muddy Pearl uh, which is the website the publisher that's the best way to get it because by the time you get it through Amazon the publisher gets about some tiny fraction of what they would get if they sold it directly because Amazon take all the money and pay no tax just saying So let's think a bit about this rule of life thing. Um, the idea of a rule of life comes from, we're not doing Greek this time, we're doing Latin. Um, the, the, the Latin word regular. And you know, we, we, we've heard of regular, haven't we? And we, we talk about regulating something to make it run properly. Um, you know, if trains are regular, they mean on time. So you've, you've got this idea of, um, in the Latin, it, it kind of means a rule or it means a ruler. Um, you know, that measuring stick thing. But a rule of life in the way that we're talking about, um, a set of practices that help us do Christian day to day, is not a rule book. So it's not an extra set of rules that we have to follow. And Jesus was always really critical of people try who tried to load people up with an extra set of rules and say, you've got to obey all this and that and that and that and that if you're going to live a proper spiritual life. And the early church constantly battled against this temptation, this tendency in the human spirit for us to, to love to take on extra rules. So people were finding freedom in Christ, freedom from sin, freedom from fear, freedom from the things which held them back. And then 
People would, in the church, usually initially quite intentioned, they would start saying, well, yeah, if you want to be a Christian, you've also got to follow the Jewish laws. You've not got to eat, you've got to make sure you don't eat certain foods. You've got to make sure that you, you go to certain festivals and follow certain rituals. If you're a man, you've got to be circumcised, all, all, all this kind of stuff. So they kept trying to add these rules on and saying, if you want to be properly spiritual, it's not just about following Jesus. You've got to do all this extra stuff as well, which is massively overcomplicating Jesus's simple three commands, isn't it? And the early church constantly battled against that. And you can read that in, in quite a lot of the New Testament, actually. Um, so rule of life is not an extra set of rules that we have to follow in order to be good Christians, let alone in order to win God's approval. Um, you have to start from the understanding that nothing you can do is there to give you better standing before God or to make God love you more because that is impossible. God already loves you as much as is possible. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more and there's nothing you can do that will make him love you less. So if you think that you've got to follow a set of rules in order to somehow achieve right standing with God, then you've got the wrong end of the stick or the ruler right from the word go. It is not a ruler to check whether we measure up to standard. And again, this is a temptation I've grappled with as I've tried to live with this stuff. It is so easy at the start of a new year, and often at the beginning of the new year, sort of February is when I review this for myself, to come up with a list of things that I'm going to do to try and follow Jesus faithfully in whatever context, in whatever environment I'm currently living, whether that's politics or whether that's my work life or whether it's my home life or my community life or whatever it is. And I, and I, I make this really great sounding, really fruitful and beneficial and helpful sounding list of stuff. I get halfway through the year, I discover I've slipped up on some, I've just let go on others and all that kind of thing. It would be so easy to say, here's the standard that I want to achieve. I didn't do all of it, therefore I have failed. A rule of life is not a ruler to check whether you measure up or not. Um, because if you think about it, Jesus' death on the cross, the forgiveness that that brings, means that living up to a standard is not what we have to do to achieve right standing with God. At the end of the day, everything that, everything that I do in my life that falls short, Jesus has dealt with on the cross and deals with the moment I bring it to him in repentance and brings forgiveness. So in that sense, paradoxically, there is no standard because whatever God's standard was, I would never be able to meet it. I would always fail. Therefore, any faith that is built on trying to hit a standard is not a, not a faithful expression of what being a follower of Jesus is about. Ultimately, my standing before God comes from Jesus' righteousness as shown in his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. It does not come from what I'm, I, am able, I am able to achieve, even though his, his resurrection power starts to work through me and paradoxically makes me more and more like him. But a rule of knife is not a ruler that clearly lays out a set of things we have to hit in order to be good enough. And as you've seen, I was a student in the 80s, therefore I went to school in the 70s. Therefore, the ruler was quite a strong feature of my school life. Um, if you did something wrong, the rule was the class teacher could give you the slipper, um, the deputy head could give you the ruler, and if you got as far as the headmaster, he could give you the cane. Um, Holly's training to be a teacher at the moment. I don't think they've got to that bit yet, have they? <laughs> <laughs> it would help, somebody just said. <laughs> <laughs> somebody over 50 I would imagine um, 
But whatever it is, it's so easy to imagine that a rule of life is something that God is going to use, us, use to punish us when we get it wrong. You didn't meet up to the standard. Bad girl. Bad boy. Not good enough. That whole idea of a, a discipline that is based on punishment and a discipline that is based on fear. And we have not been given a spirit of fear. We have been given a spirit of sonship, a spirit of daughtership, a spirit of the children of God that cries out, Daddy, my father, that goes to a loving father, not I'm terrified of my dad and that's the reason I'm going to behave. That is the relationship we have with God. So any rule of life is not a ruler to punish us when we get it wrong. So, okay, if it's not those things, then what is it? One of the best descriptions I've heard, and actually this directly was one of the meanings of the word regular. Um, a regular also meant a trellis. It meant a framework that you put up in order to help a plant grow. And that's a picture of one for those of you who aren't gardeners and aren't familiar with what a trellis is. Um, that one's from the B&Q website. Other suppliers of trellises are available. But what does a trellis do? Um, I mean, that's kind of a, a climbing plant you can see there growing up, isn't it? And without that support, that plant wouldn't have much shape. It wouldn't really be growing up towards the light. It would just be kind of flopped on the ground, wouldn't it? Um, and a regular in the sense of, the tr of a trellis, a rule of life in the sense of a trellis in our lives, serves exactly that same function. It shapes and supports our growth as disciples of Jesus. I nicked this from um, a talk that Jill Webber gave, and we've got the privilege of having Jill Webber um, coming to speak to us very soon, so um, she may recap on some of this. Um, but she describes a regular, a rule of life, the, the trellis of life that we're talking about here, as the values, practices, and relationships which provide structure, support, and space to our growth as disciples of Jesus. Values, practices, and relationships which provide structure, support, and, and space. Because that kind of plant, it needs structure. Otherwise, it could head off in any direction. Um, it needs support. It's never going to climb that wall on its own. And it needs space. If it was just kind of slumped down in a bush, then it would not get the light that it needs. It would not get the air that it needs to grow and to flower and to be fruitful. So if you're thinking about a rule of life, then forget the rule books and forget the ruler. Um, the, be the meaning of regular, in this case that we're talking about, is much closer to that um, Latin definition of a trellis, something to help a plant grow and support and um, grow to the fullness of what it's intended to be. So let's think about some of those things. Values provide structure and direction, so a rule of life should do that, doesn't it? And if we go back to what were Jesus' basic commands, that structure and direction has to be oriented around those. I would be very suspicious of any rule of life, any plan for living the Christian life, which prioritized things that Jesus did not himself prioritize, which said was really important anything that Jesus did not say was important and was of secondary value. So it's going to go back to those three fundamental commands, isn't it? So that first one, Love God with everything you've got. In the order of the mustard seed that I'm part of, we express that as being true to Christ. That's one of the three elements of that vow. In Proximity Church, we talk about encounter as one of our key values, don't we? 
An encounter is the place where we meet with Christ in that place of worship, in that place of prayer. And it's, it's in that place of encounter that we, we gaze into Jesus' face and we are refreshed in our ability to be true to him. Then there's love of neighbor, isn't there? Jesus said the second of the, the two great commandments. Um, in the order of the mustard seed, we express this as a vow to be kind to people, regardless, in whatever circumstance in life. In proximity church, we have a value of family, don't we? That, that value that says we will be as family to one another. We will support one another. We will be a place of welcome. We will welcome people into our spiritual family who come. Um, we will express hospitality, yes, as open homes, but also as open lives that welcome people in to our lives. And there's that, that third of Jesus' great commands, the command to love the lost, which in the order of the mustard seed we take directly from that great commissioners to take the gospel to the nations. And in proximity church, our third value is sent, isn't it? That we are not just a people who encounter God and we are not just a people who are family and are a welcome and opening family vitally important and foundational as both of those things are we are also a people who are sent out we are sent out to go into the world we don't just expect people to come to us so those values provide structure and direction and if you're trying to build a trellis you need those things you need those things that set what direction is this plant supposed to be going in. Otherwise, it's just going to head off in any direction, isn't it? And you can't lay sticks in every direction. That picture shows the plant supposed to grow up the wall. So that's the direction it's pointed. As disciples of Jesus, we are supposed to grow in line with the great commandment and the great commission. We're supposed to grow in love of God, we're supposed to grow in love of our neighbor, and we're supposed to grow in our calling and commission to reach the lost. So those are the directions that any rule of life, any trellis to grow up should set out. And then there's the practices, providing support for growth. So th those are principles, and they tend to stay pretty much the same. In 15 years of trying to live out my life in accordance with the principles of the order of the mustard seed, those are the bits that have never changed. I've always tried to orient myself around those three principles. But you also need practical things that you're going to do day on day, week on week. And in terms of that being true to Christ, that encounter, prayer, how am I going to build prayer into my life? How am I going to use it as one of those things that is essential and fundamental to doing Christian? Because ultimately, if I don't encounter God in the place of prayer, I'm never going to be sent out in any kind of sensible or God-oriented direction. I'm just going to be making up my own ideas and trying to do stuff in my own strength, which is kind of commendable. But when you've ever seen a, a really young child trying to do that, you know in some ways it's not sufficient. And then there's creativity. God has created us in his image as a creator to be creative people. And when we encounter with him, his joy and delight is that we bring back all that we have in our hearts expressed through the creativity that is set within us. I mean, this morning we, we, we came together in sung worship, didn't we? Somebody had to bring creativity to write those songs. We all had to express creativity to sing them out, to join together as, as a group of people. Um, 
you can express creativity in so many ways. You can express it visually. You can express it in invention. You can express it in creating new ways of doing things, new ways of expressing ourselves to God. And um, we're going to have teaching on this later in, in the year. But um, it's such an important part of being true to Christ, who is a creator. How do we create back in the image of the one who created us? There's mercy and justice. How do we be kind to people? We be kind to people by showing them the mercy of Christ. And we do that one-on-one -on -one by being people of mercy. And we do it by seeking justice where actually we need to be agents for change in systems as well as individually merciful. We do it by expression of hospitality. We are kind to our neighbours, we love our neighbours by welcoming them into our homes, by eating together, but by welcoming into our lives to having open hearts where ultimately they will encounter the love of Christ because the love of Christ dwells within us. And then coming to the third principle, loving the lost, taking the gospel to the nations, being a sent people. We do that by engaging in mission. The church has only ever grown in obedience to Christ's command to go and make disciples when we actually do it, when we actually go. And, you know, Jesus' early followers went to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, the kingdom of God only advances when we actually go, when we identify ourselves as missional people in accordance with Jesus' commandment. And that, that can look so different in so many different contexts. Sometimes it looks like going out and doing something which is specifically commissioned and sent by the church in its broadest sense, by God's people. Sometimes it means being a missionary in the home, amongst your friends, in your community, in your workplace. But whatever it is, there is something in your life that says either I am a sent person who is going to this place or I'm not. And if I'm not sent, I'm not going on mission, then I'm not obeying Jesus' commandment. And people won't hear. And if they don't hear, they can't respond. And there's learning. We are constantly called to go deeper as disciples of Jesus. And we are called to be caught up in learning relationships. So we ourselves are discipled by Christ. We are discipled by one another. And we go on to disciple others. One of the strengths of some of those what makes you a Christian things that I showed at the beginning of this talk is they are milestones and milestones are really important on our journey. They're things we look forward to to say where am I going and they're things we look back to to say where have I come from. But the fact is that most of our day-to-day -day life is not passing milestones. It's in the gap between the miles, isn't it? And we are called to be people who are constantly learning and are constantly discipling others. Go and make disciples does not just mean get them to pray, to, get them to pray the prayer and then that's job done. It does not mean get them baptised and that's job done, even though those are vitally important milestones. And they're more than just steps on the journey. They have sacramental power to, to bring real change in people's lives. But nonetheless, an awful lot of their walk of faith is going to be the miles between the milestones. And we need to be people who make disciples in that sense, as well as bringing people in. And then there's relationships, aren't there? Um, we talk about creating space, um, space for a plant to grow and to flower and to be fruitful. And we're those plants and, you know, we're the branches and Jesus is the vine and our father is the gardener. It, it said in John 15, just before that verse we looked at. Um, 
it does start with with a personal relationship with God and that is something that can never be taken away from you no matter what goes on in the world around you there are people today Christian brothers and sisters living in environments of real persecution where meeting together is difficult and dangerous actually there is a personal relationship God with God which remains vital and which sustains you regardless of the length of your shorts and it it's about our inner life of faith but actually a lot of the spaces and contexts in which we are going to grow and flourish are defined by the community the people that we are living our journey of faith alongside and that's all of us together isn't it what is the space that is defined by proximity church how does that help you to grow and flourish? How does it help you to love God? How does it help you to love your neighbor? How does it help you to love the lost? What is the space that we as a community of faith are creating in order to be this trellis, in order to be this structure that helps us all to grow? Um, what other faith community, you know, I, when I prayed, which I hadn't planned at all, to, uh, I, with Ross, I, I just felt, just inspired and stirred about the body of Christ in the world we are all part of that you know this is a hugely important local expression of it but we are all part of the body of Christ in the world what are those other relationships that you have you know when you go to a 24 7 gathering who are the people you connect with who are the people you might go and visit sometimes who just you know you, you inspire and encourage them they inspire and encourage you what are the spaces created by that that enable you and them to grow and then the spaces that I couldn't come up with the right word for, I've called it life connections in the end. You know, when I was in politics, most of the missional space that I was working in was defined by relationships with people I met in the community, by relationships with other local councillors, with MPs, with politicians, with people working in Parliament. You know, that was the space I was operating in. And so much of my missional shape, how was I learning? How was I discipling? How was I engaging in mission? How was I really learning to love my neighbour when some of my neighbours absolutely did not love me and in fact saw not loving me? as part of their political duty almost um, you know, how do you work in that environment there's so much of our our shape as a disciple of Jesus that is determined by those spaces well, what does the space that you work in look like what is the space that you bring up family and raise children in look like what is the space created by your friendships look like how do those life connections enable you to live out loving God and loving your neighbor and loving the lost what are the spaces that God is drawing you up into in order that you might grow and flower and be fruitful in those environments because if your rule of life doesn't encompass those then it's just about the religious bit of your life and that is important but it's not sufficient as you probably realize nothing I've nothing I've said today is in any way new um, you might be having this feeling haven't we heard this all before somewhere and the fact is that rules of life have brought blessing and renewal throughout church history um, I don't know how good the selfie is uh, they took rather a long time in those days and you had to get a half decent artist but um, you know you will have heard of rules of life as monastic rules so the rule of St Benedict one of the famous ones encompassed prayer and work and relationships and rest and you have seen those as some of some of the components of the trellis I've just been describing you know he, he would have referred to it as a regular so that word trellis you know people people would have 
listened to Benedict talking about a regular as a rule of life and then gone back and strung their peas up one. So, you know, the picture would have been much easier to them. And, it's, and so we've all heard of those things. We all know they're there in church history. But we might think, well, how's that relevant to me? I'm not going to go and become a monk or a nun. A guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the renewal of the church will come from a new type of monasticism, which only has in common with the old an uncompromising allegiance to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he does look a bit like a Nazi in that picture, doesn't he? Um, that's because he was a German and he lived in the first half of the 20th century. You just dressed that way and wore those kind of glasses. That was what you did. It was like the 1980s shorts thing, but different. Um, and the fact that he is shown as 1906 to 1945 is because he was killed in a concentration camp almost out of spite about two weeks before it was liberated because he'd been put in there for refusing to submit to the ways that Nazis wanted the churches to be run. He founded something called the Confessing Church, which was a church which said, we are not going to do what is politically demanded from us, even at the cost of our lives. We will carry on being faithful to Jesus. And he recognized that in an environment where you couldn't run church services and you couldn't really gather together in the way that you wanted to unless you followed a bunch of rules about how you were allowed to be Christians that were so strict that they looked nothing like following Jesus at all. They looked much more like following Hitler. Um, all you were left with was what are the principles I'm going to live my life by? How do I love God? in an environment where I'm told I mustn't? How do I love my neighbor in an environment where we are doing the most brutal dehumanizing things to our neighbors? How do I love the lost in a way where our attitude to the rest of the world is supposed to be about subjugating them? Um, he was killed for that ultimately, but he understood that in those environments where the culture of Christianity has almost been erased from public life and from people's lives, what you're left with is something that looks like a new kind of monasticism. It doesn't look much like going into a, a monastery or a convent or whatever, but it does look like an uncompromising allegiance to the teachings of Jesus as expressed in the Sermon of the Mount and as summarized in the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And we've got form on this stuff around here. Um, have any of you ever been to this place? It's called St. Yeah, a few of you have. It's called St. Peter's on the Wall. Um, possibly the oldest certainly one of the oldest churches in this country it was built in the mid 600s so 7th century um, at a place called Athona which was a derelict Roman fort on the the coast of Essex near Bradwell and um, the reason it's lasted is they built it out of good old Roman stones that had kind of fallen to the ground and you know it's been a church through much of its history occasionally it's been a barn then it's been a church again it's largely intact um, the reason that they founded a monastery there was because a guy called Sed came down from Lindisfarne, the coast of Northumberland. He'd been a disciple of Aidan, one of the, the Celtic monastics. And he came with a bunch of people. And what they did was they founded monasteries where they were going to live according to a rule of life that led them, lit, that led them show what it meant to live as a follower of Jesus in practical ways. And they did that at Athona, at Bradwell, and they did it at Tillerberg, which is Tilbury. We're not entirely sure whether it was West Tilby or East Tilby or Chadwell St. Mary or somewhere in between, but certainly on that escarpment of land that's running um, above what were the marshes and are now the port of Tilbury. And through their witness, coming and living by a disciplined rule of life, which 
enabled them to to be Christians in their environment, said and his companions brought the gospel to the East Saxons, which is where we get the word Essex from. So basically they brought the gospel to Essex man and Essex woman. So they're the reason why many of us are Christians today. And if you look at what Bonhoeffer said, you know, we've done this. Actually, in a world where it can no longer be taken for granted that people have any kind of Christian upbringing, you know, the the Saxons living in East Saxony were basically pagans, um, that they have any kind of understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, the way that they brought the gospel was to come to establish themselves amongst those communities and to live it out in visible ways. And that was how people learned what a Christian was. That was how people learned what doing Christian looked like. That was how people learned what the Christian life was, by observing people living by this rule of life, this life of faith. And as we move into an era where less and less of our neighbours will have any kind of understanding of what a Christian is, you know, they've got the vicar of Dibley and that's about it, um, we are going to have to start living in this new monastic kind of way, a way where our lives serving Christ are clearly visible. They provide a trellis which follows up, enables us to grow in our life, but also provides a pattern that others can follow. I'm going to end with some questions. I'm not going into them because I'm talk about them all day, but maybe we could talk about this in our um, house churches. So what does being a Christian, what does doing Christian actually involve for me day to day? What are the things that make my life recognizably Christian? What values and practices bring structure, support and space to my spiritual life? It's very unlikely this will be entirely new to you. Most of us will have practices of prayer, practices of all the other things. Um, so what are the things that are there in my life? And specifically, in what ways am I already engaging in the practices of prayer, creativity, mercy and justice, hospitality, mission and learning? In talking about this, we're not saying we're not doing this stuff. What we are saying is, let's recognize it, let's orient our continued growth around it, but we will be doing many of these things already. Which of these are currently the most developed and fruitful in my life? You know, is God really raising me up in prayer at this time, or is it about mission, or is it about creativity or hospitality? Where's the fruit? And, you know, following the fruit is sometimes a good way of seeing what God's calling me to do. Are there any areas which God wants to prune back so that new growth can have space to emerge? You know, in those passages we were looking at, go back a bit before, and it talks about, you know, branches that are fruitful, God prunes that they might bear even more fruit. Pruning isn't a punishment when you get chopped back. It's about creating space and air and light for new growth to emerge. Am I in a fallow season in any of these areas? Um, again, if you're not quack and you don't do an allotment, um, leaving ground fallow means you give it a rest. You don't try and grow anything out of it for a season or for a time. It's okay to have fallow seasons in some of these things. When I first started living by a rule of life, I would list out those six practices and make a list of things that I wanted to achieve in all of them. It took me a while to recognize that there might be some where, where what God was calling me to in that moment was to rest from it, not to try and do more and more of it, especially if God wanted to create space for some of the others at that particular time. So am I in a fallow season in any of these areas? Can I just accept from God that there is a reason for that and not say, oh, I'm not doing enough of this, I need to do more? 
And, but how also will I recognize that it's time to sow something new? Leaving ground fallow is not neglect. It's about letting the land recover so that there can be new sowing and new growth and new fruitfulness. And when you're in a fallow season for a while, you sometimes stop thinking about when am I ever going to plow and plant this? How will I know when it's time to sow something new? What are the relationships that provide support and accountability on my spiritual journey? Um, and that, there I guess I'm looking about relationships with people of faith, with other Christians. But also what relationships are key to living out my calling in the world? Are the relationships in the community, in the workplace, in family, in whatever? Which, they're not Christians, but those relationships are key to me living out my missional calling, my calling to hospitality, my calling to justice and mercy. You know, all those things ultimately focus on people. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would sow your words into our hearts. You would call us back afresh to your commandments and you would raise us up as a community that we would challenge and encourage and support one another to stir each other's up afresh, to live by your commandments, to love God with all we have, to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love the lost with all our strength. Amen.